Well, that was the most adorable thing you're going to see today. <laughs> uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 6. If you don't, I'll read along with them. In a way, there's nothing I'd rather see before preaching than a baptism. In a way, there's, um, it's also the hardest thing to follow because it gives more of a sermon than I could ever give. Um, but before you get too excited, I've already studied and prepared, so you're going to have to listen to me anyways. Um, we're going to be in Judges 6. If you have a way to bookmark or mark anything, uh, later we're going to look at Matthew 19. Um, so those are the two passages we're going to spend some time uh, looking at today. And uh, I'm going to ask you to just join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for um, just the gift of life in your son. Uh, we thank you for the beautiful picture of just uh, being buried with you in baptism and raised to walk. And just the hope and grace in life that only you can provide. And so, God, we just stop today and thank you for that. Um, and, Lord, for this time where we open your word, uh, it, it's yours, God. It's your uh, word. It's your people. It's your time. And so uh, we need you. I need you. Um, just take over in this moment. Uh, just push me to the side. Push me out of the way. Uh, just remove the distractions and worries of life. And uh, I just pray that your word would accomplish exactly what you set forth for it to accomplish today. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome again. I, I hope that you're all well today. Uh, you look pretty good today. Um, I'm tired. I was tired yesterday. And I was tired the day before that. And I was tired the day before that. And I don't mean that to be a complaint. It's not a, a statement declaring that I need to rearrange my calendar. It's actually my joy. Um, because you see, the reason I'm tired is because... I get the privilege to live uh, life on this earth as the father of Hattie Lily Parks. Hattie is my five-year-old, and in her tiny little frame that never stops moving is an energy source that has yet to show any signs of running out. Uh, um, I am baffled at the amount of energy she has, and every day um, can barely keep up with her. Um, you may have seen her around here. If you're a guest, I would describe her to you, but most likely if you've seen her, it's just been a curly-headed blur just zoom right by you. Um, if you've ever been in this building and you think you saw something, only it was moving too fast for you to be sure, you probably just met my daughter. Um, early on, we took her for a physical, uh, just kind of check everything out, and then they checked to see what type of blood type she was, and she wasn't type A or B or even O. What they discovered was that running through her veins constantly is the main ingredient in those little five-hour energy bottles. Um, it's, just, it's just nonstop. And uh, one of the great benefits of this energy is the veracity with which she attacks life. Um, she does nothing halfway. Uh, it, everything is just full speed all the time. And it's really fun to watch, but there are also times where you just need to, as a parent, just kind of pull back a little, just pull in the reins. Um, for instance, she's always the first one awake in our house, always. Uh, and without fail, she'll get up and walk into our room and come to my side of the bed. And she doesn't speak softly. She doesn't kind of tap me on the shoulder or anything. What she does is, is she takes her hand and forms this this kind of motion with her hand, and just jabs it into my neck um, over and over and over again. And I tell you, it's, it's not the most serene way to start your day. Um, it's not a great wake-up, but every day it's how, it, it's how it goes. It's our little routine. Um, the other thing that we've been working on with her is just her patience. She gets so excited about everything that, that, that who has time to wait on anything, right? So if she has a story to tell you, uh, something to show you, a question to ask, it, it doesn't matter in her little mind what, she's, what you're doing. Um, in her mind, we have to deal with this right now. Uh, and so what happens is that she'll interrupt people. 
It's going to be a long process, but we're working with her and trying to grasp the need, really just kind of understand the need for waiting, the need to just hold on a minute, need not, don't interrupt people, let them finish their conversation or what they're doing before you demand their attention. You see, I had to be taught this too, right? And so did you. This is a learned behavior, okay? We, this is, we don't come out of the womb like this is a learned behavior. This is, but this is some of the things we, we pass down to each generation because it's one of those benchmarks of our social society. Nobody likes to be interrupted, we're so task-oriented, so focused on the here and now, so busy. The last thing we want to do is to be clipped by something from the side. We don't have time to deal with things that we weren't planning on. And so one of the, the ideals that we pass on to each generation is, is the idea that the interrupting is bad. Right? So we have formed this social contract with each other. In spite of all of that, there, there remains one who doesn't really care about our social contract. There's one who reserves the right to, at the time of his choosing, interrupt us however he wishes. You see, we serve a God of interruptions. Throughout scripture, we find example after example of of God just crashing into someone's life and experience and turning everything on its head. If we were to pass the mic around this morning and have you come up here and share, many of you could share a moment about when God broke through your life, he broke through your plans, and in really an uninvited moment of interruption, he redirected you uh, for the glory of his name and for your benefit. See, despite how little we care for interruptions, despite how unwelcome they are, thank God that he is a God of interruption. Do you know that the gospel, the, the gospel that we hold to, the gospel that we find salvation, that is a story of interruption. If you belong to Jesus this morning, God interrupted your life. The Bible says that, that you were headed down a path of deception that would lead to your ultimate destruction. And if you are his today, God broke through. He broke into your life. He snatched you from that path and he made you his child and set you on a path that will lead to eternal life. In his grace, because of his goodness, and for his glory, God interrupts his people. He interrupts our lives at his choosing to present us with a call that is to something greater than we could have ever imagined for ourselves. And the Bible is just littered with these stories. And if it is, if if it really is full of these stories, which it is, then, then we can assume that they are placed there to teach us something about the heart and character of God. See, I think you could talk to any person, uh, Christian or not, and ask if they want to be used by God. The vast majority would say yes. The vast majority would. Because who doesn't want to see God do amazing things in their life? Who doesn't want their life to matter? Who doesn't want their days on this earth to leave a legacy that outlives them? Who doesn't want to feel that, that, that my life has purpose and meaning and adventure? Who, who doesn't want that? The vast majority of people do. You see, not everybody gets that. That's not the base common experience among humanity. Too often life is wasted. Too often pursuits and energy and investment are used on things that just really don't matter. And as a result, we, we find people like Mark Twain writing in his final days that when we die, we will leave a world that will lament us for a day and then forget us forever. And that's all it is. You see, I think God included in his word for a story after story of people whose life he interrupted, people who got to see God work in amazing ways through them so that we could learn what type of person God chooses to work through. And maybe more importantly, what type of people he chooses not to work through. 
Almost a third away through the, through the book of Judges is one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible. His name's Gideon. And I want us to look a little bit at his story today. But before we get to Gideon, I think it's important to know what was going on in Gideon's day. What was, what was kind of the news of the day? What was happening? Now, in Judges 6, at this time in Israel's history, they've already settled into the land promised to them by God. And so what has happened in their history up to this moment, God has delivered them from slavery. He's freed them from the terrible reign of Egypt. He's taken them across the wilderness. He's kept them alive for for 40 years. And then he went before them and took out nation after nation, stronghold after stronghold in front of them to grant them the property that he promised them long ago. And in doing this, in, in, in freeing them from slavery, in giving them this land, he showcased his power in so many ways. And, and in doing all that for them, uh, they settled in the land that God gave them. And the Israelites had a genius idea. The Israelites decided that the best way to thank God for doing all of that was to turn from him and go worship other false gods. God's devoid of any power. Just mere statutes. Statues and ideas that had done nothing, nothing concrete or real. And so at the beginning of Judges 6, we're told that God let them have their way. They didn't want him. They didn't want his protection. They didn't want his goodness. So the phrase the Bible gives us is that he turned them over. Just turned them over. And a neighboring nation called the Midianites came in and conquered and took control. And they weren't very gracious hosts. In fact, they were so cruel that, that by Gideon's time here in Judge 6, many of the Israelites have moved into caves to hide from them. Whenever the Israelites would plant crops for food, if the Midianites discovered these fields, they would destroy them. Uh, they brought their allies in to come and take all their livestock. And so for seven years, the Midianites uh, were methodically, cruelly, slowly starving the Israelites to death, driving them from their homes and taking all of their land. And the people of Israel, after seven years of this experience cried out to the Lord. They went back to the God who freed them from Egypt, the God who fed them for four decades as they traveled, the God who gave them this land in the first place and who they couldn't wait to turn against and leave when they settled. And when they're starving and broke and homeless, they come crawling back. Now, if God was like us, he'd laugh them off. You gotta be kidding me. You're coming back now? What do you want me to do? Tell you I told you so? That sounds like my response. But you see, God is not like me in in this and so many other ways, and we should all be thankful for that because here's the great story of the Bible. All of us, all of us, no matter when in our lives, if we approach God, we come broke, we come homeless, we come starving, and we come in that state because we rebelled against him. And his response to us is grace and mercy and love, and we deserve none of it. And in Judges 6, he does it again. He hears the cries of his people, and he's moved to respond. And to do so, he's going to interrupt the life of one of his children. So look at Judges 6, and we're going to start in verse 11. Judges chapter 6, verse 11, follow along with me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the clan of Abiezar. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. 
So the first picture we have of Gideon is that is he's hiding, he's carrying away at the bottom of this wine press to hide the grain that he's threshing from the Midianites. He's got to hide this food so they don't take it. And in the middle of that process, all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears, with him, appears to him and says, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And in, a, in his despair and his frustration at the end of his rope, Gideon begins to question that. He begins to question the goodness of God. He begins to question the presence of God. He says, wait a minute. If the Lord is really with us, then why am I down here in secret threshing my wheat? You know what he's asking, right? He said, if God is with us, then, then why is all this happening? And what Gideon's missing all along is, is he's taking no ownership for his own people's idolatry. In his response, there's, the, there's no mention of their unfaithfulness. And even in this, Gideon has shown incredible grace. Don't uh, take for a second here this morning that Gideon is perfect. He's not. But even in this, he's shown incredible grace. Because the angel doesn't even bother to explain or even answer Gideon's question. Right? It says, the Lord turned to him and simply tells them, you want to know what I'm doing about Midian? I'm sending you. Go and rescue your people. This one line, just this one utterance, Gideon would know his life will never be the same. No matter what happens from here on out, he knows that in three years he won't be at the bottom of a wine press threshing wheat. God has broken through his despair. God has broken through uh, Gideon's incorrect view of his own involvement. God has broken through the people's cries and he has interrupted Gideon's life. And God has amazing plans, he tells Gideon. Plans to redeem his people. Plans to save them from their enemies. Plans, plans to bring life and joy and peace. And he's telling Gideon, I'm going to use you. Now look at Gideon's response in verse 15. But Lord, Gideon replied... How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh. I'm the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I'll be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So Gideon gets this amazing life calling from God. And he says, I'm ready, God. Send me. This is why I lifted all those weights. This is why I went to, to military school. It's why I've trained and studied and prepared because I knew all along that you had great plans for me. Thanks for showing up and confirming what I believed about myself all along. Let's go get it done. Doesn't say that at all. He says, wait, me? Why, why are you picking me? I, I can't save Israel. I'm from the weakest clan in this nation. I'm worse than that. I'm, I'm the least in my family. If you made a list of your first 10,000 choices for this job, I wouldn't be on that list. How in the world can I rescue Israel from this formidable enemy? I'm hiding right now at the bottom of a wine press. I'm so scared of these people. Now don't miss how simple and incredible God's answer to Gideon was. He says, it's quite simple, Gideon. Here's how you're going to do it. I'll be with you. That's my answer. I'll be with you. And because of that, those hundreds of thousands of Midianites, when you defeat them, and you will, by the way, but when you do, it will be as if you were fighting against one man. So Gideon is faced with kind of his first gut check, life-defining moment here. Will he embrace this call or will he cower away? And he does something that we can learn from. Gideon asks for a sign to make sure that God is speaking to him. And God's not opposed to that at all. 
He's he's a giver of wisdom. And so God confirms to Gideon, yes, this is indeed the Lord calling him to do this. And so Gideon accepts this responsibility. And at this point of of the narrative, it's all been pretty good. God has showed up. He's interrupted Gideon's life. And this was the message. I've heard the cries of your people. I'm going to save Israel and I'm going to do it through you. I will subdue your enemies for you. And it's all pretty good until we get to verse 25. Look at verse 25. That night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bowl from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Happens to be the exact same amount of time Israel's rebellion. Pull down your father's altar to Baal, cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here in this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bowl as a burnt offering on the altar using the fuel of the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. Now, Baal was a really common false god and idol in those days. Right? And Asherah w- was seen as a goddess and is seen as the spouse of several gods. Uh, idolatry almost always makes next to no sense. Um, but Asherah was seen as the wife of El, the wife of Baal, and in the greatest perversion, some Israelites even claimed that she was the wife of Yahweh, the one true God. Uh, and God says to Gideon, okay, here's your first task and your new life calling, right? And it has nothing to do with Mid- Midian. Because before your people delivered, you need to clean house. And you need to do this. So I need you to go and take down your father's altar to Baal. You need to go and cut down that pole used to worship Asherah. And then you build an altar to me. And you sacrifice to me one of the best bulls from your father's herd. And, and, and for fuel, for kindling, I want you to burn that Asherah pole, leaving no doubt who the real God is. Now here's what we must understand. This was not just a religious ceremony. This would not be easy for Gideon. Gideon signed up for defeating Midian. He had no idea this was coming. And the thing we have to understand in that culture, in that context, Gideon has no earthly authority to do any of this. It's not his bull. It's his father's. And as you heard earlier, livestock is quite spare in this these days. And as the least of his family, he's given no authority as spiritual leader and therefore could not tear down these altars. And worse than that, to take down this altar and this pole was to tear down the central place of worship for everyone in that town. And even though we know looking back it was false worship, they weren't going to be happy about this. And just a couple verses down, you'll find that the men of the town demand that Gideon be killed for doing this. And so let's just, let's just put this calling into our language. Let's just let's try to understand what happened here. God shows up and he interrupts Gideon's life and he says, I'm going to rescue your people and I'm going to do it through you. Are you in? And when Gideon agrees, that night God says to him, all right, job number one, go destroy your pro- father's property, anger your entire town and make everyone want to kill you. Something tells me this wasn't the vision that Gideon had in mind when he signed up for this. I mean, think about it. What vision would you have in mind for freeing your nation from the Midianites? You'd be thinking about saving the day, being a national hero, no more starvation, no more hiding. But God's path was, hey, you're going to ruin the day. Everyone will hate you and they will want you dead. That's step one. Verse 27 tells us that Gideon was afraid. And of course he was. But the most important part of that verse tells us He did as the Lord commanded him. 
When push came to shove, even at the risk of his own life, Gideon did what the Lord asked. Now push pause on that story. Because it's just the beginning. Trust me, it's far from over. But fortunately from you, the sermon is not. So we've got to turn over to Matthew 19. Turn to Matthew 19. We're going to push pause on Gideon for a second. Because I want you to see another story in the Bible that doesn't quite flow the same way as Gideon's. Matthew 19, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher... What good deed must I do to to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, the man asked. Jesus replied, you must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father, father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? All right, here in Matthew 19, we find a young man who comes to Jesus in a way he kind of initiates the interruption. Right, he, has a, he has a question for Jesus about what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. But, but as this discussion goes along, you'll see that, that Jesus knows all along what we'll, we'll come to understand fully by the end of it. It's, it's this idea, this man is not looking for answers. He's not really seeking wisdom. He's looking for a pat on the back. What this guy is expecting is, is Jesus to tell him in front of everyone how good he is. How he's already earned favor with God and therefore has achieved eternal life. In verse 20, this guy's crazy enough to claim he kept all of the commandments that Jesus listed. And then he asked Jesus, what more do I need? And he's fully expecting to hear back, wow. Well, nothing. You need nothing, my child. You lack nothing. Let's give this guy a round of applause because if there's anyone here you want to be like, it's this guy right here. That's what he's expecting to hear back. Only Jesus has a surprise for this man. It's not a compliment. It's an interruption. And Jesus in one sentence is going to destroy this guy's entire life view and then invite him to something greater. Look what he says in verse 21. Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You want to know what you lack, Jesus says? You don't trust me. You don't believe in me. You haven't put your faith in me. You believe and have faith in your money and in your possessions and in your standing in the community. So here's my invitation to you. Get rid of all of it. It's going to be so cool. There are people who went to bed hungry last night and guess what? They won't go to bed hungry tonight and that'll be because of you. There'll be people, there are people right now who don't have furniture and clothes and basic necessities and now they will and it'll be because your sacrifice and for the first time you will have complete joy because you will be free from the slavery to those possessions. They will no longer have a hold on you and they'll be used for my purposes and then, and then the best part, then young man come back to me. But this time come empty. This time come with nothing but your faith. This time come knowing you have nothing to offer me but yourself and your will. This time come completely reliant on me to work through you. And your life will be much different, yes, but it will be so much more greater and fulfilling than it is right now. 
This guy stood in, in Jesus' presence for I don't know how long. And he thought about what Jesus asked him to do. But he had a lot of money. And he had a lot of power. And he had a lot of uh, a great reputation. And so he said no. He said no to God. And Matthew tells us he walked away sad. You know, I wonder sometimes at what happened to that guy. The Bible includes nothing more about him. In fact, everyone who walks away from God's call in the Bible, we never hear anything from again. See, it may be, it may be that he lived life to be a really old man. And I'll bet everybody thought he was a terrific success. He was very respected, very wealthy, had a lot of strength, was quite religious. But so few people knew that when his great chance came, when Jesus offered him the call of a lifetime, he just simply walked away. He chose comfort and familiarity over God. See, either way, when you get called by God, you're never quite the same. It's really important that you know this. When you say no to one of God's interruptions, when God asks you to do something and you say no, then your heart gets a little colder. And you get a little harder of hearing and your view of him gets a little smaller and you can reach a plateau in your walk with Christ and it gets less likely that you'll ever grow past it. But the good news is there's a flip side to that because when you say yes, you get more than risk. You get more than than unpopularity or challenge. When you say yes, your life becomes an adventure, becomes a partnership with God where you learn to live reliant on his power and his resources and his wisdom, not your own. Every time you say yes to God, your view of him grows bigger and you get to see God work in your life even more than before. And it makes it even more possible for you to say yes the next time he interrupts your life. Now you see the beauty of these stories in the Bible is that God paints for us a picture of the type of person that he likes to use, that he uses most. So to land these narratives today, to kind of land our time together this morning, I just want to get really practical with you here. I'm going to give you some very clear application. I'm going to give you a list of characteristics of the people that God used in the Bible to do some amazing things. So if you're here today and you're in the vast majority, right? So you want to see God work in your life. You want to see prayers, answers, and souls saved, and communities changed, and lives redeemed. And if you belong to Christ, why wouldn't you want to see that, by the way? If you want to see God work through your life, then first, here's the first thing you got to do. You need to become reliant on him. The person that God uses is a person who is reliant on God. Look at the, look at the examples in scriptures. Moses was a, was a wanted fugitive who had a speech impediment. Gideon was the least of his family and the least of all the clans. Mary is a 13-year-old outcast. Right? None of these people bought into the idea that somehow they were a big deal. They had no illusions that they could save the day, that the answer could somehow be found within them. They knew that to see any kind of power in their lives, God had to be the one who, do it, who did it. They knew that in order for great things to happen, God had to do it and not them. And they also knew that he was capable and willing to do so. And so when you read these narratives in scripture and saying yes to God, they weren't saying yes to themselves. They were saying yes to him, yes to his power, yes to his strength, yes to his wisdom, and none of their own. Because they were relying on him. Secondly, the person God uses doesn't have too high a view of themselves. 
I get that brief list I just gave you, add to it, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Joseph, many others in scriptures, people whose lives got interrupted and they all had the same response. If you don't know the stories, know this, this was their response. Me? Really? Why? I'm, I'm so unworthy, I'm not qualified, I'm not capable, I'm unclean. Surely you must have someone better in mind than me. And what they didn't realize was that it was that very attitude that qualifies people in the eyes of God. It's the meek, it's the humble, it's those fully aware of their weaknesses who God uses most because he knows they are the people willing to be showcases of his power, not their own. And lastly, if you want to be used by God, be flexible. Surrender control to him. And here's why. God is a God of motion. He is always active. He is always at work. He is always on the move. And so if you're going to live a life of faith, there's never a period of time where you're allowed to settle. The type of person that God uses always remembers that we are just passing through this world and God can interrupt our lives as he sees fit. And when he does, you better believe he's going to change something. It might be your career. It might be your focus. It might be your hometown or even your country. It might be your life mission. It might be your relationships. Anything is at his disposal. And so the Christian should hold on to everything except Jesus very loosely. Abram, take everything you own, take your entire family, leave the home country, the only place you've ever known, and move it all, and I'm not even going to tell you where to go yet, just go. You all up for that? Gideon, I'm going to deliver Israel, I'm going to do it through you. Moses, um, go back to Egypt. I know you're a wanted fugitive, I know it's the greatest earthly power in existence, but I want you to walk in there and walk out with all my people. See, God is a God of motion. Think of the call to the church that Jesus left the church. It's an active one. Go, 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 Jesus says, into all the world and make disciples of every nation, teaching them to obey all the things that I've taught you. The person that God uses is somebody who's flexible and ready to move. Now on the flip side, I said I believe the vast majority of people want to be used by God, but I'm not going to act like it's all of you in here today. So I'm going to help the other group out here this morning as well. If you don't want to see God work in your life, then there are a few things you can do to ensure he will not. So pay attention to these. Number one, you don't want to see God work in your life? Build your life around safety and security. Do whatever you can to structure your life to make sure that you don't need him. Don't ever give sacrificially. Say no when challenged to put yourself at risk. Guard your home. Guard your kids from people who have different upbringings than you. Make it your life mission to create a bubble of safety around you and your family to where only those people and things deemed worthy of your investment are allowed in. Pharisees were incredible at this. They're so good at it. Do that and you can be sure that God won't use you very often, if at all. Number two, lead with your resume. Have an immense confidence in yourself and your goodness. The young, this, this rich young man in Matthew 19, he was so impressed with himself, he just couldn't wait to tell Jesus about his righteousness. So make sure that you view yourself as above or superior to other human, human beings. Be proud of your religiosity. And most importantly, if, if you want a position in life or in a ministry, campaign for it. Tell others, tell God how worthy you are of a title or position. Do these things, 
And God will be sure not to interrupt you the next time he wants to work powerfully through someone. Lastly, be a slave to your calendar and your plans. Chase your dreams. Fill your days with a a to-do list so long that nothing else can be allowed in, not even a prompting from the Holy Spirit. Set goals for your life and make sure no one can derail you from those goals, including God. Be so task-oriented that you completely lose sight of eternity and the greater things that God is up to. That way, you can be just like Martha, who ran around so wildly that day Jesus came to her house, hard at work preparing the dinner and the day's events, and who wanted Jesus to scold Mary for doing nothing but sitting at Jesus' feet. Just go ahead and ignore the part where Jesus says that Mary had it right, not Martha. Fill your day with so much that you collapse every evening into your bed knowing that in just a handful of hours you're going to awake to do it all over again. Be sure to leave very little time for God and others. Do these and most assuredly God will not call your name the next time he wants to work powerfully through someone. But you see, Gideon wasn't like that. Gideon's story was just beginning. He's... He, at the end of, of that, of that t- tearing down the idols, he goes out and he summons an army. He calls an army. And, and the men of Israel went with him and formed and marched out to face the Midianites. And on the day of battle, God decides he's going to show up and interrupt again. And he says, Gideon, you've got uh, too many warriors. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Gideon, I wouldn't see that as a problem. You see, Gideon obeys. He sends home 22,000 men. He's only left with 10,000, and God says, thanks for that, but you still have too many. And so God shows Gideon who to keep and who to send home, and Gideon sends home 9,700 more, leaving only 300 men, 300 men for Gideon to lead into battle against an army of around 135,000 soldiers. Now, why in the world would Gideon do that? How could he ever be as reckless as to think that this plan would work? Well, there's two reasons. One, he stuck out his neck for God before and God came through. And secondly, the same God who told him to send all but 300 home was the same God who told him on day one, Gideon, I'm going to be with you and when you destroy the Midianites, it will be as if you were fighting against one man. See, in Gideon's mind, it wasn't 300 against 135,000. It was 300 against one because God said so. And if you read the rest of Judges, God delivered a mighty victory for getting Israel, freeing them from the terror of the Midianites. The young ruler in Matthew, well, his story probably continued. We just aren't told anything about it. And we aren't told anything about it because the Bible is the story of God. And so those whose lives fill up multiple pages of the Bible are those who allow God to work through them. If you want to see God work through your life, be reliant on him. Don't think of yourself too highly. Surrender all control to him. If you don't, if you say, I don't want to see that, then build your life worshiping safety. Be proud of your righteousness and be a slave to your plans. God is a God of motion. He will use who he chooses and how he sees fit and he doesn't need you and he never has. But in his grace, he invites you. He invites you to experience life with him. Life to the fullest is what Jesus called it. And I hope you're a person who accepts that invitation. 
You allow God into your plans, into your homes, gives him control. If you want to be used by him, you have to surrender. Surrender your life, your family, your plans, your resources, give it all to him. And in the end, it makes sense because he can do way greater things than you can with him after all. So give it to him. Let's pray. Father, every interaction we have with you is by grace. Psalms tells us that we don't even deserve for you to to waste a single thought on us. And yet here you are, pursuing us, saving us, redeeming us, and inviting us to experience life with you. Lord, we deserve none of it. And you don't need us, so thank you for even extending the invitation. Father, even to say yes, we need you to do this work within us. So I pray that around this room, hearts would be surrendered to you, that we would submit our wills to you and say, Lord, make me the type of person that says, says yes to you. Break me free of my idolatry of comfort. Break me free of my idolatry to my calendar, my worship of my plans and dreams and goals. Free me of those things and help me be a person that just says yes to you. Father, do all these things in us for the glory of your name and the furthering of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.